there's three questions that have kind of been posed to the churches. In week one, the question was, are you a loving church? If you remember back to Ephesus, it was a church that had kind of um, cast out a bunch of false teachers. Um, but as they were doing that, as they were holding to the truth, they had let go of love. And they had started to become cold. And even though they were a church that initially was very loving, they stopped doing that. And so Jesus calls them back to that. And then in week two, the question was really, are you going to be a faithful church in the midst of great suffering and persecution? That was the church in Smyrna. Are you going to hold fast even when your life is on the line? In week three, are you a pure church? That was last week. We looked at Pergamum. And this church externally looked great. Faith, love, they were engaged in the city, holding fast to the name of Jesus, but their life was reflecting something else, and specifically in the areas of worship and sex. And this week, it's like Pergamum a little bit farther down the road. And so we're going to look at um, a church where not only have they kind of let go of some of the things in their lives, but they're starting to now accept it as being taught within the church. And so really the question is, is are you going to value the truth? Are you as a church going to value the truth? And um, there's a great, great quote from a movie. I don't think it's an actual real quote. It could be, though. And it's just anonymous, and it says it's from a DC bar. And the quote is this. I'm going to edit it slightly. Um, but it's, truth is like poetry. And people hate poetry. <laughs> and so this is actually picking up on some, one of the refrains that we've heard over and over again in these letters. And that is, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. This is actually familiar. Jesus used this in his public ministry when he was teaching. He would often say it at the end of a very confusing thing. He'd say, oh, he who has ears, let him hear. And here's what that means. It means that everybody is going to hear it, but are you going to listen to it? Because when Jesus is teaching, when he's proclaiming truth, it'll do basically two things. It only does two things ever. It will either transform you and turn you into a faithful worshiper and follower of him, or it will harden you and make you more resistant, more calloused. And so the desire, the heart of Jesus is that we would all hear and be transformed and be changed. And so as we kind of go into that, this is the, um, the challenge for our text today, um, is that we're going to hear some things that we probably don't want to hear. Last week, we heard Jesus kind of threatening the use of the sword against the church, and now we're going to see what happens when the sword is deployed. And so here's what I would encourage you with before we read this text and kind of go through it. Um, it's one of the best things about Revelation is that Jesus is front and center and he's exalted and he's glorified. And sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that as we're thinking about how we fit into the pieces, but um, John doesn't really care. He just wants to hold up Jesus as the center, 
as the ultimate king of the universe, the one who has won victory. And so as you're listening today, know this, that we are seeing one side of a very complex and rich character, and that is Jesus. And so I'll um, try and help us remember the whole part, but we're really going to look at one piece of the puzzle, and then I'll kind of like at the end try and zoom out and say like, here's how it fits into the whole puzzle. Um, but we're just going to look at one piece. And so let's go ahead and do that. If you would, please turn um, with me to Revelation 2, and we're going to start in verse 18 and go all the way through the end of chapter 2, verse 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works are ex are exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, it is hard to hear and read these words and not um, have a very mixed response. Um, in some ways, we tremble when we see um, the might of Jesus unleashed. And Lord, I just ask that you would help us to hold fast to you, um, that we would hear your words and remember who you are, that you have made us, that you formed us from dust, and that, Lord, you have shown your love for your children by sending your son. And God, even in the midst of great judgment, there is a call for us to hear and to repent and to turn back to you. And just, God, I, I ask that you would open our ears. Help us hear. We can't do it by ourselves. We don't want to hear this truth. We are naturally disposed to reject it. And so, God, we need your help. And so I ask that you would mercifully do that, that even this morning we would hear this and we would know you 
um, and be able to claim you as our prize and you as our victory. And God, please help us do this this morning. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we look at this church in Thyatira, we need to connect it back to Pergamum. And so I'm just going to remind you guys a little bit, and if you weren't here, um, please listen to that sermon. Um, it was really important in kind of establishing the next couple um, in terms of what Jesus is doing and what he's looking for in these churches. And so in Pergamum, the church, if you remember, they were holding fast to Jesus' name, not denying the faith. Um, they had the example of this guy Antipas, who um, basically was martyred. He held fast to the name of Jesus with a faithful witness um, until the end, until his death. And so they had that example, and yet they were starting to kind of practice the, um, the pagan worship um, of eating in these ceremonies and um, the, the, just the prostitution orgies that were happening in the temples. And so they had kind of started slipping and becoming more like the surrounding culture. And if you remember from the image of the, um, of the prologue to this whole letter, the whole purpose of a church is to be a lamp. So the churches are the lampstands, and Jesus is in the midst of the church. And Jesus sends these stars, the message that he has for each of these churches, to light the lamp. And that's familiar imagery for what churches are supposed to be. They're supposed to be a light in a dark place. And so when the church in Pergamum started kind of practicing and looking more and more like the people they were living amongst, their light was starting to fade. And so Jesus gave them the correction. And in Thyatira, like I said, it's kind of ramped up. And so now we have teaching in the church saying, yeah, oh, it's, it's totally fine to do that. So people in the church are now teaching other people in the church that that's okay, that that's how we work as God's family, that we can go and do this, that we can worship other gods, and it's really okay. And the judgment of that ramps up as well, as you can hear, like the sword is deployed. And so before we kind of launch into this, let's think about what kind of city Thyatira was. And in some ways, it's kind of obscure. It's a lot smaller. It's a not very well-known city. Like, it's not like Pergamum. It's not a capital or anything like that. But here's what it is known for. It's known for being a city of hard-working people, people who are devoted to their work. And that's kind of the identity of the entire city, is what guild are you part of? What trade are you a part of? And so I think we can kind of identify with that, right? This area is a hard-working area, and we take a lot of pride and identity in our work. Um, and so here's, the, here, here's really something that's important to know, though, is that Jason explained this last week, but these trades had their own guilds, and each guild was assigned a god. And in Thyatira, the gods were sons of Zeus. And so you can see Jesus already, he's, I mean, he's coming out and he's attacking that because he's identifying himself, I am the son of God. And so he's placing himself above these other gods, um, these so-called gods. And he sets himself um, in this context with the eyes of fire and feet of furnished bronze. So eyes like a flame of fire. This is um, hearkening back to Daniel 10, 
where we see this image of the Son of Man, and he's explained just like this. The idea between, behind the eyes of fire is that it's piercing. It's all-seeing. It's an all-seeing gaze. Fire goes out and it consumes. So there's nothing that can stand in front of the gaze of Jesus. And then burnished bronze is he is firm. He's planted where he is. He's kind of immovable. And bronze was also one of the trades in Thyatira. And so it's an interesting kind of um, interplay how Jesus is choosing to identify himself here. And this city in Thyatira um, really did a good job of placing pressure on Christians because the expectation was in order to work, you had to be part of the guild. It's almost like a really tightly wound labor union system where like if you wanted to work in a job, you had to join the guild. And then if you were in the guild, you would go to the temple ceremonies and you would have these feasts and these um, celebrations every now and then where they would bring in prostitutes and it would just be gross sexual immorality happening. And so if you are a Christian in that context, how are you going to live? How are you going to navigate that life, that pressure? It's tough. And so you can understand how this would happen at a church like this. You can understand how it would be appealing to hear from somebody in the church, it's okay. Like, you got to eat, right? So just go ahead and join the guild. Like, Jesus knows your heart. It'll be okay. And so that was happening in the midst of this church that has works of love, faith, service, patient endurance. They're kind of like the anti-Ephesus. So if you remember in Ephesus, there was a progression from like very loving to not loving at all, even though they were holding to the truth. And here in Thyatira, their works are exceeding the first, but they've let go of the truth. And so how they were doing this was in verse 20, we see this, um, this criticism that Jesus offers. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So Jezebel is not the name of the actual person. It's a name that um, Jesus is using to communicate something about what she is teaching. And so you have to go back to 1 Kings, um, starting in 16 and throughout, um, to learn more about Jezebel. Um, but Jezebel was the, king, or was the wife to King Ahab. And the story is basically that Jezebel was kind of pulling the strings of Ahab's kingship, which led Israel into gross idolatry, where they were um, essentially worshiping Baal and um, just completely leaving their worship of God behind. And Jezebel was kind of the power behind that drift. But going even further back to the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel, the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel was a marriage of convenience and pragmatism. So it was, she was a representative of a neighboring people who posed a threat to Israel. And so by Ahab marrying her, it kind of creates a little bit of a treaty. 
And so already you see like, oh, there's a lot of tension and pressure in my context. I'm going to release that by figuring it out on my own and disobeying God. And so that is kind of like a paradigm because what, what essentially Jesus is saying is just like Jezebel, this woman is also doing the same thing. And behind all of that is we see that this is not just Jezebel, and it's not just this woman in Thyatira, but this is a strategy of Satan. And it has been Satan's strategy from the beginning of time through the present moment to distract and dilute his people with false teaching that leads to sexual immorality. And so that's just how, that's just how Satan works. And so we need to know that. We need to, um, we need to understand that if we're going to engage faithfully in a city like this. So Jesus sees Thyatira, and again, the external picture of this church is really positive. Like, all of the signs of life are there. Faith, love, patient endurance. They're growing in all of these things. And so Jesus basically sees them, and he sees them kind of like a tree that is planted in the midst of a drought that is just beginning. So the tree looks like it's alive, but the source that it's connected to for life has been interrupted. It just doesn't know it yet. And so we learned that if you separate truth and love, just like in Ephesus, remember, if we, we learned that if you hold on to truth but let go of love, you actually don't have truth anymore. You have a lie. You have the lie that you can have truth without loving. It's not how it works. Well, it's the same thing here, just the other way around. If you try and love without truth, you're going to do great harm. And so truth is the foundation for a faithful life. And if you let go of that, the structure might stand for a little bit, but it will crumble. And Jesus knows that, and he sees that. So again, it's, it would have to be so tempting to be in that church in Thyatira and to have one of your friends in the church who you know well start to tell you, yeah, it's okay. Like Jesus understands. He's not, he's not going to require this. He wants you to have your best life now. That's what he wants for you. And that means you can do whatever you need to. Just figure it out. Jezebel's teaching solved a lot of practical problems. It solved the tension of how do you live as a Christian in this world. And honestly, their life probably got a lot easier because all of that social pressure would just go away. But in this letter, we see Jesus seeing through all of that and taking the holistic view and saying, no, 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 no. If you let go of the truth of what I have taught you, what God has taught you from the beginning of time, it will end in destruction. And so Jesus comes on the scene, verse 21, he comes on the scene as the judge of truth. And so this is where, when we read this, we get uncomfortable. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. This is not like Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild. It's not the Jesus that we naturally think of. And that's a really good thing. 
just going to say that. And it doesn't stop there. All of the people who committed adultery with her, all of the people who were led astray by her, if they don't repent, I will send them into a great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. This rebellion is not going to last. He's ending it. So let's look at four things that we learn about Jesus from this judgment, from this act that he proclaims in Thyatira. The first thing that you learn is that as, um, it might be hard to think about this initially, but it's a patient judgment. He's given Jezebel time. There have been calls to repent. We don't know what they were like. But Jesus says, I've given her time to repent, and she refused. So it's very patient. He's given her and her followers time to course correct, um, but they persisted, and they continued to lead more and more people astray. The second thing that we learn about Jesus' judgment here is that it's powerful. He exercises authority over life and death, sickness and health, mind and heart. Remember the Hebrews verse of what the, the word of God is? It's a sword. That's not like a, just a nice verse to remember. It's literally doing this right here. It's separating joint from marrow. And it's separating soul and spirit. So the sword is deployed fully here, and this is what it looks like. So it's coming in power. Third, it's loving. And it's not the kind of love we're used to. It's not the kind of love that is warm and fuzzy and um, cares about your feelings. It's the kind of love that has redemptive purposes. It's the kind of love that sees the outcome of disaster before it happens and intercedes and halts the disaster and brings it back to healing and to whole, wholeness. Think about all of the people in that church who are trying to hold faithfully to the truth. So there's some that are being led astray by Jezebel, and then there's others who are, no, I'm going to stick with what I know God has taught me through his prophets, through the apostles that I trust that creates an immense pressure when there's division like that in a church because now you have real people telling you different things and there's pressure put on you. And so when Jesus comes and he issues this judgment and he cuts out this cancer, it comes a great relief to those who are pursuing faithfulness because they're reassured, yes, that is the path that Jesus had me on. And now I don't have that nagging temptation to turn away. And then fourth, and this is most important, his judgment, it brings him glory. So he goes out. And you see this in verse 23 at the end. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. So word of this will spread and Jesus will be glorified. 
And so this is kind of one of those moments where we have to hit pause and remember it's not about us. Like, the book of Revelation is not a book that is primarily designed to make us great Christians. The primary purpose of Revelation is to show Jesus off in all that he has done for his people and to show him as glorious. And so we get to read this and with great trembling acknowledge that Jesus is king and he is the truth. And it is his foundation that props us up and allows us to love him and pursue him. We get to see the truth and beauty of Jesus as he looks into a tiny little church that's kind of like a nothing church. And he cares enough to come down, enter in, and cut out this cancer that's plaguing them. That's the character of Jesus. That's the type of Savior that not only we have, but that's the type of Savior we need. Because that, that people, what they represent in Thyatira, that is the state of our natural hearts. We reject the truth. We want to figure it out on our own. We want to be able to just offer our sacrifices, appease the gods, and live our life and get blessed by the economy. That's what we all want, isn't it? Just naturally, that's what we want. But the type of savior that we need to save us from that is the type of savior that Jesus is. And he comes in power. So for those who hold fast to truth, truth being the foundation of the faithful life, now we get to see the outcome of the faithful life. And we've been talking about conquering. That's one of the other themes and refrains in all these letters is Jesus says, to him who conquers, I give you this. And I was talking with some, um, some of you guys about this. This seems just so abstract. It really does. It's like, oh, that's great, conquering, cool. What does that even mean? How do I do that and how does it make a difference now? And so this, um, this is going to get worse because this is really abstract. We don't really know what these symbols exactly mean, but we do know what they represent. And so we're going to talk about that. But conquering is shown to be cosmic victory to this church in Thyatira. Have you guys ever run in the dark? Okay, sweet. <laughs> So I, I don't know. I don't like to run, but I got put in positions where I had to run. Um, and we had like a little headlamp we had to as the, rule, the rules of the race. And we're in the middle of nowhere running with a headlamp. And you can't see anything except for what's right in front of your feet. And it's really nice because you can kind of zone out and not worry about how far you have to go. Um, and so it's really convenient if the goal is just to keep running the race that you're running. But here's what it's not convenient for it's not convenient for gaining perspective. You don't know where you are. You could be in Montana, or you could be in Arizona. You don't really know. And so, when Jesus zooms out and shows us conquering on his terms, he's giving us perspective. And it's really helpful because it interrupts our little focus of this life 
where we're just looking at the next step in front of us. Because when you do that, it's great until you don't know where you're going and you've been going the wrong direction. And so when we see conquering as cosmic victory, it just turns all the lights on. And we get to see, it's again, Revelation is ripping the veil between um, the seen and the unseen and it's showing you the purpose of all of history. We get to see into that. We get to see what ultimate purpose actually is. And so it establishes victory as something much more than we initially think. And so the, the appeal of Jezebel's teaching, remember, is that it made your life right now a little bit more manageable. Well, what Jesus offers is authority over the nations. He's saying if you conquer in this way, if you overcome, if you hold on to what you have until the end, I'm going to give you a rod of iron, and it's going to go through a clay pot. Think of that image. A rod of iron destroys a clay pot. So all of this tension, all of the struggle that you are feeling, church in Thyatira, you're going to grab that rod of iron and you are going to participate in destroying it. And what you are destroying are all of the forces of evil, sin, death, and suffering. You're going to participate in that. You're going to feel the wind. The irony of your life as a Christian now, where you feel like you're losing all the time, is going to disappear. And the reality of your position in Christ as the victor will be firmly established. And then he's going to give you the morning star. So the morning star is um, one of the more enigmatic references in in scripture, we don't really know what it means, but it represents the rule of the Messiah. So the morning star was always always serving to illustrate that the Messiah is here and he's reigning. And so Jesus, again, he's sharing his rule. He's sharing his authority with us. Like, that is crazy. He's been given all authority over heaven and earth, and he's sharing that with us. Do you feel equipped for that? Can you handle that kind of authority? Yeah, he's going to give it to you. He's going to give it to you. And so that is what we're promised. Um, Now, I'm just going to speak to us as a church, because I, I, I live in this city, I feel this tension myself, and I know you guys feel it through talking to you. And Jesus, or Jason kind of, Jesus did too, but Jason kind of opened that door last week, and we talked about the temptation that we feel in the city um, that's just, we're in a hyper-sexualized culture where it's all about you. And so I want to apply what we just heard to that for a minute. And I want to encourage you guys, because there's a lot of you here who aren't married, and that might be by choice, it might not be, but it is so hard (laughs) to live faithfully as a Christian when you're not married. It is 
almost seems impossible. Like the, the pressure on you to just do what the culture does is really strong. And that might mean dating somebody that you're probably not supposed to be dating. That might be pushing boundaries that you shouldn't be pushing. It might mean just remaining pure until you're married. All of those things are true things that are really hard to hold on to. And so I just want to encourage you because I know some of you are doing this extremely well. And it feels like nobody sees you. It feels like there's no purpose to it and it feels like it's never going to matter. And what we see here is Jesus says it absolutely matters. He sees you in that and it's precious to him. It's precious, it's precious to us as a church because it helps us, if we're married, it helps us be faithful. Your faithfulness impacts our faithfulness. And if you're married, it's not really any easier if you're married. We know this. Are you holding fast to your husband or your wife? Are you guarding your mind, your heart, your eyes, your entire body from temptation that's all around us? Are you pursuing each other in love? I know it's really, really hard. <laughs> and it seems like it doesn't matter again. You just get caught up in kind of the everyday um, monotony of it. And Jesus sees it, and it greatly matters to him. And it serves as a beautiful illustration of the gospel for our church. So if you're not married, your faith, your love, and your desire to please Jesus in that season, it's showing off the sufficiency of the, of the gospel because you're saying, I don't need that. And if you're married and you're faithful in that, you're actually demonstrating the beauty of the gospel. And then as a church, let's broaden this out and not just think about how it relates to our sex lives or relationships. But do we as a church fight to pursue the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for you? Do you wage war against the idols in your life that want to take away some of the tension of the Christian life? I know you guys do. And we need to keep doing that. And I'm just going to tell you guys, if you ever hear teaching from this church that makes the commands of Jesus kind of optional, that is a huge problem. And you have a responsibility as a member of this church to put an end to that. And us as an elder team, that is one of our most fundamental promises to you guys, is that we will put an end to that. We have got to hold on to that, the truth of who Jesus is, of what he demands of us, but also what he promises us and what he gives us. To close, I want to fill out some of the, some of the complexity and the richness of the character of Jesus. And this is a poem. It's written by a guy, Glenn Scrivener. Um, he's an Australian pastor. 
Um, and it just helps so much kind of look at the multifaceted nuance of who Jesus is and how his character meets different needs in our souls. So I just want to read this as we close. And it's actually based on Revelation 7 um, and just all of who Jesus shows himself to be in the book of Revelation. For our anxious little realm, for the fears that overwhelm, there is a throne. For mistakes we can't forget and the sins that still beset, we have a lamb. For our lost and lonely hearts, for our gnarled and tangled parts, we have a shepherd. For regret and ravaged years, for sweet and bitter tears, we have a father. For treks through burning sands to our home in promised lands, this hope till all is done, our God, the three-in-one. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, yeah, we thank you so much that you are a God of truth. That in the midst of a culture and a nation that has proclaimed um, ourselves to be post-truth, that you intercept that and that you show yourself as completely true and trustworthy. And Lord, we thank you so much that you give us the opportunity to hear directly from your mouth. God, we, we thank you so much that we can respond and pursue you through your word and through each other in this community. Lord, I ask that you would protect us as a church, that you would protect us from people who, even if they don't realize they're doing it, doing it lead us away from who you are. God, help us cling to you, to your word. Help us apply it with love and faith. And God, preserve us. Help us to remain as a witness to this area um, for many, many years. And pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.